I'd like to start by thanking you for being here. As Sokazan often does, just let you know that we really appreciate all the support you show through your contributions and your participation. There's a great deal, and I mean a great deal, that goes into keeping this functioning, operating up and running, just being able to continue to make these teachings available, let alone the maintenance of the building. So anything you can offer is always greatly received and appreciated. And again, if uh, nothing else, your your greatest gift is your participation in these teachings and practices. Good evening. Thank you for joining Basic Buddhist Teachings this evening. Tonight, I'm going to start um, a short series of talks that will take us up until our month-long Angle retreat in February, talking about the four reminders. And so this evening, I'm going to be talking about the first reminder which is often in its simplest form talks about the precious human birth. But this teaching, the four reminders, sometimes called the four thoughts, is very uh, common in Tibetan Buddhism. I believe it's incorporated in a Nundro practice. And I've seen where it's been attributed to Padma Sambhava. And it's a way for us to contemplate a number of things. It's a reminder of the Dharma. It brings our attention, the four dharmas that return the mind to the dharma. And it's a lot of times used as an inspirational practice, but also around death and dying. This is a practice that is incorporated heavily uh, for those actively working with death and dying. But it's also a practice that Sokuzan has given to a number of his students to just see if they can't recite that first thing in the morning. I know that's something he did for years. He would recite these four reminders before... Uh, getting out of bed, I believe, even before opening your eyes. So the idea was that was the first thought in the day. And so the first reminder of the precious human birth, and there's many ways of translating or writing this out, the way in which we work with it, which I believe comes from Trungpa Rinpoche, uh, goes first contemplate the preciousness of being free and well-favored, difficult to gain, easy to lose. Now I must do something meaningful. And there's a traditional image in Buddhism of the precious human birth. And it's, I really like it. And I think it's because I like turtles a lot. I'm really fond of turtles. And so the image is if the entire earth were one great big ocean, no land anywhere. And there was one turtle in this great big ocean of a world. And there was a ring in this ocean. I think of like a life buoy, a life uh, a life ring you see at the end of piers or on boats, and it's just floating around in the ocean. And this turtle is going to come to the surface once every hundred years, once every thousand years, once every kalpa. The likelihood of having a precious human birth is the likelihood of that turtle popping up through the ring. I really like that image. <clears throat> The way that might make uh, resonate more deeply is that we have no idea how we were born and we have no idea if anything will come after death or if there's any sense of uh, life or rebirth after death. Of course, traditionally, theoretically, there's a lot of um, information in that area. There's been a lot of people looking into rebirth, but we don't know. So here we have this one opportunity, a precious human birth. And the idea of being free and well-favored, the well-favored does not mean that our karma is easy. It does not mean that the causes and conditions arising for each of us individually are not overwhelming, painful. It's that for, for some reason, 
we have curiosity to look closer at these causes and conditions, at least close enough to consider that we might not have to just live at the whims or the impulses of dependent origination. So we first contemplate the preciousness of being free and well-favored. We don't know how we got here. We don't know if we will ever get here again. Uh, difficult to gain, easy to lose. Now I must do something meaningful. So the encouragement is, and in our tradition, it would be the meaningful part would be to practice the Dharma. The Dharma is something that helps us understand or clarify these profound causes and conditions that have come together to create the appearance of an identity in a world where the teachings are available, the teachings are alive, and we can investigate that closely. And so you could imagine. If you worked with a practice like this, just this first reminder, how you might start your day and how if we could actually consider how precious this opportunity is, how it might change the way we live our lives. And the next four reminders, which we will go into more over the next three weeks or two weeks after tonight. Uh, the second one is impermanence. The third one is karma. And the fourth one is suffering. So not only to appreciate the precious human birth, but to see how transient it is that death comes without warning. To see that there are causes and conditions that we tend to fuel. And that the result is suffering may inspire us to navigate our day in such a way where it's not, I'll save it for later. So it's what is it that I can do to relate to what is in front of me more directly? How can I return to my vow? How can I acknowledge my vow? that the precious human birth for a bodhisattva or an aspiring bodhisattva is how do I orient my life? How do I orient body, speech, and mind towards seeing the truth for the benefit of others? And so you can see where this practice would first maybe show up as an aspirational practice, a preliminary practice, perhaps included in preliminary Tibetan stages. But you could also see why it would be so heavily tied into death and dying. It really acknowledges how quickly and unexpectedly death can come. And that at the time of death, uh, it's, it says that you will be helpless. You will be helpless at the time of death. At the time of death is not the time to try to all of a sudden, well, I want to train my mind now. Uh, some of that, there are practices around that. But now is our opportunity to, to work with that. Something about that phrasing, though, precious human birth, I think, can be deceptive, too, because as I said, it's not a preciousness in the sense of um, we had a wonderful birth or we had a wonderful childhood or that the causes and conditions that surround us are easy. But again, precious in the opportunity to learn to receive, to practice receiving. We have forms that facilitate that. We have a teacher, we have a teaching, we have a sangha. And reflecting on this first reminder, even conceptually may help us reframe the way in which we approach our world. That if this is a precious human birth, there isn't anything that's not a precious human birth, no matter how outlandish, no matter how heartbreaking, no matter how disturbing it is. And so as we function throughout our day to just flash on, to consider, not maintain, but the precious human birth, the precious birth of all compounded phenomena, unreal, transparent, ephemeral, but it's showing up. 
So as Sokazan says, we don't reject it, we don't accept it, we don't look away. But in considering the precious human birth, we may look at it more closely. We don't just see it for what we think it is and move on. We might consider, what is that? What is it to be precious? What is it to be uh, a precious birth? Free, well-favored, difficult to gain, easy to lose. And how do I do something meaningful? The meaning is always directly in front of us. The preciousness is always directly in front of us. Whatever is arising, no matter how contrary it is to our ideas, is the meaning. And Sokazan, I feel like, was uh, talking about that tonight during As It Is with Yudao's question, that the answer, the question is the answer. The question is the answer. That what is arising is the precious birth. It is what is meaningful. It is what we do that is uh, do something meaningful. Give what is showing up your attention. If you're looking for a, um, a good translation of that too, I we can send you a copy. And I believe I found it on the Nalanda Translation Committee. I believe was started by Trungpa Rinpoche. And uh, online, it's, as far as I can tell, word for word, the, the same four reminders that Sokazan has us study as well. So they're everywhere. Everyone's commented on the four reminders. There's countless uh, materials to investigate that. And I have no doubt if you go onto YouTube, you can also find talks that Sokazan has given on these, these four reminders to return our attention to the Dharma. Does anybody have questions about the first reminder of a precious human birth? Yeah, but I mean, this first reminder doesn't strike me as something terribly Buddhist. It seems like very applicable. Anybody is. Is your. What is there to do? What is there to do? Is there anything to do if one is not a practitioner? I feel the way in which that ties into the practice uh, specifically is in the form of training the mind. That free and well-favored is not as simple as just being able to have a physical body. There are people that are, are enslaved and tortured in a physical body. And to me, again, that free and well-favored is that there's enough, as Sokazama said, there's enough curiosity to ask what this is. And then at the end, to do something meaningful Again, that could be interpreted in countless ways, but the Dharma, to me, interpretation would be to practice the Dharma. What I also like about what you said, though, is that you said it seems very applicable, and I feel like the Buddhist teaching should be. I, I feel that we don't want them to tumble into relativism, but in its essence, there's nobody that these teachings don't apply to. Now, that's not to say they should be practicing them, but... I think the Buddha was a radical in that sense and that he intended or endeavored to make these teachings as accessible as possible. In his time, what he was coming up against were things like the caste system, um, as well as, you know, and even he had resistance to bringing women into monasticism. But I think that these teachings are very much available and applicable without having to have a special background, but it's a matter of are you curious? Is this resonating in such a way where you want to look closer? 
and not everybody wants to and, and probably not everybody should. In buying you speak of the, doing something meaningful as training the mind. When I hear that first reminder, I, what comes up to me first over and over again is some sense of putting others first or serving others. Um, is there um, a, a tie in that first reminder? Where does that relate? I think that to me, it also is, resonates very strongly that the meaningfulness is training one's mind is not isolated from serving others. Uh, there's a strong intention connected to seeing clearly that it is to be a benefit of, to others or not cause so much pain for others. And I, that's perhaps where we see that delineation between the Pracheka Buddha and the Bodhisattva. And I don't think we need to be disparaging the Pracheka. I would love to have a self-stylized realization of any sort. But the Bodhisattva's intention is a little bit different. It's not an isolated realization. So I, I think that in reflecting on these Four reminders. Again, if you recognize the preciousness of this, the impermanence of this, the karma, the suffering, for some, there's no guarantees. It may begin to soften the way we relate to others, less demand. We actually see how complicated and how difficult it is to be able to be. And so there may be a sense of at least giving somebody the benefit of the doubt, if not a little warmth towards the suffering of others. You said the meaning is always right in front of us. How does that look to you? I don't know. The way I understand that is that we're not looking for something that has a locality other than where we're at, that it's not a, um, an obscured meaning. It is the very question it's not its own answer intellectually. It's not that the question is the answer in the sense of um, logically or conceptually. It is the very fact that it is compounded phenomena it is an invitation directly into dependent origination, that you don't have to have a resolution from the apparent misunderstanding that the question comes out of. And so I think that's where the immediacy shows up that it's not something that I can follow logically or understand necessarily, but it brings my attention back to precisely how something is arising is how I need to receive it. And any impulse to modify abandons the generosity of what is showing up. You just said uh, how it's showing up matters how how is that the form the texture not how conceptually but again when we sit down to meditate the if we were taking an emotion for for an example those seem to be the most antagonistic or uh, seductive to do something with that the very form that that shows up in if it's anger it does not need uh, where it came from. It doesn't need a justification. It doesn't need a resolution, but it is, I think sometimes this is where we might talk about rungjung or it's self-existing. It is complete. That doesn't work if we're looking for it to make sense conceptually. And so I just come back to Sokazan saying that you don't have to get rid of anything. Or when we hear in the teachings, everything is preaching the Dharma. I still like how Sokazan said it. Everything is 
screaming at you, not separate. That can't be the case if it needs to be modified. But it's the prejudice, the projection, the lamination that obscures that, you could say. But even that isn't an obscuration of seeing clearly. Even the projection doesn't have to go away. I was, um, when you said how, I was just hearing some juxtaposition between the form and the content. Could you say one more? I probably misspoke. No, I, I think that's just where I was going. Where it was. No, 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 no. I misspoke. <laughs> uh, and so when you're saying to look at how it shows up, for example, with that, with the anger. I guess, I don't know what the content would be other than the story of anger. But for example, with uh, a, a thought that arises, it seems like the words could be one thing, the content and the, the fact that it, it, the form, the thought is arising could be at something else. And uh, I guess my question is both, do both matter? They both completely matter, but they don't connect. They don't, they don't align. They don't resolve. And so what I'm trying to say is that anything that you can describe, it, it, that's always appropriate, but there's still some impulse to have resolution. There's still some impulse of modifying or, or creating or pacifying that there's some activity that if we could just do that activity, then it would be realization. And I don't know this, but I, I feel the way I understand, the way this is talked about, the way I've been receiving this from Sokazan for as long as I have, not to be disrespectful, but it's so much more simple. It's so much more simple, not that the, the imagery or the feelings are very complex or very frightening or terrifying, but those are self-arisen. You have no say-so in those showing up. So you could say, in a sense, why should you have any say-so in modifying them? So the practice of meditation can begin to be a practice of ease in the sense of you see you don't have to do anything. That dependent origination is not going to particularly stop in its relative form. Sight, smell, taste, sound, touch, thoughts are going to continue to arise. But just as they arose without your say-so, they don't need your permission to sustain. They don't need your permission to, to resolve, to uh, fall apart. And in that sense, it becomes a very soft practice of just as we're returned to over and over, just receive, just observe, just receive. And it, in its simplest form, that's the instruction Sokazan gives. It's a very simple instruction, but we make it very complicated. And so therefore, the instructions match that by becoming a little more complicated to help give us a little more sense of reminding us in more elaborate ways that just receive there's nothing to be done with what is arising i'm also hearing now like a differentiation between uh, observing and receiving what's arising so that you can do observation or make observation more active than what you're suggesting right now or what you're pointing at um, I think those, to me, those two words are pretty interchangeable. Now, if I, I wanted to go into them intellectually, we could find, we could make any story to differentiate them, and we could make up a story to resolve them and say they're the same thing. In 
to me, this is where the personal quality comes in is what, what is it that's going to get you back to the cushion to continue to look? I wouldn't, I don't, I don't feel too hung up on the particular phrase. It's not to say you can say anything, but I feel that when we sit down to meditate, observe or receive as the starting point, but what we actually are doing, we can't really define. And so Kazan said something along those lines that you can't even see the part of consciousness that's being trained. And that was a relief to me. That was something about that was very relieving. Even more so, there's less to do, just but to show up, to intend, to intend to see. Thank you. You and I, if doing something meaningful is training the mind, what is everything else? You know that once you start to train the mind, everything is training the mind, but we we need those containers to start to understand what that means. We can't just immediately jump into the deep end and say, well, everything's training the mind. Everything is the teacher. No, we need we need a living embodiment and we need strong forms. But there's no area where you you aren't training the mind. I think that becomes very apparent, particularly at the monastery. For me, at least, and perhaps for others that you see even outside of the more formal practices, there's still a lot happening that's tied into the heart of this mandala. Even, you know, you and Shoto have been working on the bathroom at Mountain Peak for like two weeks now. I don't know what your experience of that is, but does it feel like completely isolated from, from the monastery or the, the whole mandala of training the mind? Bogobang, I'm not sure if I can formulate my question or what I want to know. Um, is the curiosity that we have about what this is more than intellectual or conceptual? I feel that it is. I can't say for everybody. It's hard to continue for as long as many of us have continued or return as often as we do on a weekly basis if it weren't more than intellectual because we aren't most of us are not getting satiated in that sense after 10 years 11 years 12 i don't know been studying with focus on for a long time so there's something that seems probably more than conceptual in that curiosity um, if it was just conceptual it would be easier to you know, by now you'd have a PhD, you'd have done your four years of undergraduate and then maybe four years of graduate and then some postdoctorate work and good to go. Are you able to say what that non-conceptual curiosity is? Is there another word besides curiosity for it? What immediately flash? For me, would be a heart connection. Um, Sokazan and I were talking this morning, and I forget what you asked me. But my response was something along the lines: "Like I wouldn't, I, I wouldn't still be here if it weren't for X." It was, it was something, and it's like, 
if you were just going on the most basic relative traditional expectations and norms this doesn't really make sense you're hearing somebody say you might not even have this in 10 years or 20 years or 30 years or 40 years you may never have anything and for some reason you don't go well i think i'll go spend my time doing something else so to me maybe it's a stretch from curiosity but there's something that is connecting a lot of us on a level that's much deeper than then we can simply uh, explain to family or friends and most of us don't even try so we might call it a heart connection our relationship's another example of that say more <laughs> like you like you said to Isu, we've been trying to get away from each other for a while <laughs> yeah shoka i put this screw in his drink tonight <laughs> It was in the radiator. And when I went to start my talk, I see that he had snuck it into the cushions up here. Sukran. Sukran bowing. For someone who makes the simple practice complicated, what would be your instruction, bowing? Well, my instruction to you would be to talk to your teacher. There's a heart connection there for sure. But the simplicity is not other than the complication you're talking about. It really is not. The complication is just dependently arisen. It's not contrary or at odds with the simplicity of the practice. The simplicity of the practice is seeing that that complication has every right to be there, and you're not the one that gives it permission to be there. So when you see you're not giving it permission to be there, nor are you the one to modify it, that's the simplicity. The content is absolutely complicated and outrageous and heartbreaking and everything else we begin to see the simplicity when we see that it is not uh, personal it's dependently arisen that doesn't just show up intellectually that's why we just continue to return we continue to utilize a form like uh, dokusan utilize a form like box sitting So Grand Bowing, do you have insight into a understanding where thoughts are not identified with bowing? I need it a little yeah. differently, sorry. Yeah. I'll think about it. Thank you. You home bowing. Yes. The curiosity you just mentioned, can it be strengthened um, or deepened by the repetition of returning bowing? I think so. I think very much so. That as we return, um, you could say those walls of the mind become more transparent or our projections become more apparent. And so in that sense, I, I feel that the curiosity can take on a new form as we continue to return because we start to wear out the, the habituation. We stop necessarily buying into the impulse of thinking or the impulse of action, perhaps not uh, in its entirety, but long enough to ask ourselves, what is that? So yes, I think that's a wonderful question. And I feel that my experience has been along those lines of the returning 
So the teacher has helped me understand that relationship better. Returning to the cushion has helped me understand that better and in a way that I'm more curious about it and perhaps less certain of what it is. Thank you. Bye. Thank you. Jishin. Jishin Bowing. Is that hard connection you are talking about uh, in the case of the teacher? Is it the connection to the teacher or to what the teacher represents for us? Bowing. Probably a little bit of both. And I think initially it may take on more of the form of the, the teacher as a person, but also as a representation or an embodiment, not just a representation, but an embodiment of the lineage itself. And so in that sense, it goes far beyond the teacher, but you don't abandon the teacher either. You don't just... So Kazan said the other day, I still, when asked if he idealizes Trungpa and Koban, and his answer was immediate and definite. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. So you still see that there's still some connection that's pretty strong for him that's related to those two forms, and yet it's also not confined by those forms in the sense that what it's not lost at the passing of those bodies. Thank you. Thank you. How do you understand the contemplate in the first remembering? I'm going to put it in the, uh, again, a traditional context and then see if I can't respond more deeply. If we're looking at Buddhist, um, particularly Tibetan Buddhism, there's three stages of um, uh, thinking, contemplating, and meditating. And so the first thing is we hear the teachings and we do consider them. And we're pretty analytical sometimes and we look at them and we turn them around and we ask questions about them and then we sit down and meditate without necessarily setting up an expectation. So contemplation is a more active practice where you actually can go through and consider what those words mean and what they mean to you and how they may, may or may not resonate. So I think contemplation is not something Sokazan overly emphasizes, but it's also something I've heard him talk about on a few occasions. Sometimes he'll say, if you're going to sit for four hours, maybe you could spend 10 minutes, some, the note card method, where he'll say, write something down on a note card, spend five or 10 minutes thinking about it, contemplating it, and then just sit for the next three hours and 50 minutes. So this practice can be done as a contemplation where you word by word break it down, and it can be done quicker as you get more familiar where you just recite it or repeat it. Interbowing. How is this first reminder different from um, like a gratitude practice? of just listing things or thinking of things that you're grateful for, bowing. Well, it's certainly not listing things you're grateful for necessarily, but I'm also would say that there may be a quality of gratitude um, in that. 
it would be individual. Other people may find it just abrasive or condescending or too fluffy or too whatever. So this isn't a practice that necessarily is universally going to be something everyone wants to do. But I, I would say that there can be a quality of in acknowledging these, these things, particularly the precious human birth and the impermanence of it, which is a second reminder that you might have some appreciation. And that's a word that uh, I, I like a little bit better to appreciate it. Um, the other thing would be that oftentimes a more traditional expression of gratitude or appreciation is a cover-up. It's like, stop thinking about the bad things and just be grateful for what you have. Just appreciate what you have. And so the totality of these four reminders uh, starts out with that positive precious human birth. But then it says, oh, and impermanence and karma and suffering. And so it's more about going into the material deeply as opposed to pacifying one's own experience. I think it, it, it can open up the experience more than softening. Yes. How can we understand and see the limitation of words, the words of teaching? One of the ways is by recitation. Because as you recite something over and over and over again, it really begins to, uh, it starts to come apart because the words start to become sounds. And that's really interesting. I don't know. I did this as a child and maybe I don't know if you did or if your kids do this, but you say the same word over and 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 over. And it stops being a word at all. It's just this sound. Did anybody else do that as a kid? I thought that was really fascinating how you can make words not be words anymore. I have a word that I invented that I taught to one of my friends, and then it was like a secret code word. And it was Don Juan Raldo Lagoranto, and I'm always a wish it real. Can you spell that? <laughs> yeah, I can. Yes. And, and he, uh, he remembered it too. He pronounced it slightly different, but I thought he should. Get the privilege to <laughs> pronounce it differently. <laughs> and it started out with his first name, Don. Want to hear it again? Yeah. I'm not going to say Well, we've got it reported. <laughs> but that's that's another way to work with these practices is that um, so Kazan sets it up this way. He says, sometimes go very slow, consider each word, and other times zip right through it and just say it very quickly over and over and over again. And both ways can be, be helpful because it can be helpful to contemplate. And again, you can't say this is going to help for everybody. It's not, it can't be set up in that way. But for some people, that recitation over and over again, where the conceptual meaning drops away, you may have more of an intuitive experience of it. That's not ultimate truth. It's not an advantage. It's just another way for us to approach this or look at this. Go ahead, Yunho. Yunho, I think 
the reason I asked the question because I started to notice more and more every time when I speak, I feel like I started to have the um, could be fear or awareness of taking positions by saying the words. However, as a human being, as also my profession, I cannot not talking that much when I in the classroom. So just every day when I when I speak, I feel like that fear. I started notice more and more of taking sides by reinforcing the words that I use. Is that a uh, should I be concerned about that or just I just need to observe my fear and that? Sorry. I feel that just the, the very fact that you're asking about it, you're considering it, you're looking at it. Um, that's probably enough. And as you continue to look at, it, you may be surprised at how it changes. I've been lucky enough, again, the, the feedback I've gotten mostly around my talks is about maybe, as you've heard how I pronounce words, but also words that I may repeat a lot and occasionally getting the, the feedback of, why don't you see if there's a few other words you could use in place of that? And that, that's been helpful. Maybe in a way I can't quite say but it starts with just being aware of how you're communicating and not necessarily trying to change it because you want it to be more in line with how you think it should be. So I would say, yes, just continuing to look at it. Thank you, Bowie. Thank you, Bowie. Is contemplation a search for meaning, Bowie? I don't think it has to be. But it may evolve. It may it may lead you into another area where you're considering this, and then it may lead to another area where you're considering that. I think if we were to can look at contemplation as another intention, the intention is to is perhaps to go into it a little bit deeper to to look at it in in a more conceptual realm. But I don't think it has to hinge on meaning. Because you could contemplate the four reminders for the rest of your life, and that would be enough. It wouldn't be about now I have the ultimate meaning of the four reminders. Um, and I think that's how we work with study here as well, is that it's a continual contemplation without the expectation of a result. But there there is more of a, an active quality in contemplation as a as opposed to you could say. Um, just the receiving of meditation. You mind? I'm kind of stuck on that word meaning. Does it have any meaning? The contemplation? No, the word meaning. Is it important? Relatively. I think relatively, again, if we're using any language to help us look more closely, but the meaning is not necessarily going to solidify something new or different, but we want to see what this is. And you could say in that sense, what is this all about? What does this mean? Not a phrase we would use necessarily here. So I wouldn't get a, a rid of the word meaning, but look at the way in which are we trying to use that to abandon what is arising, to cover up, to look for something else, or are we using it to help facilitate us to just look very deeply at the very thing that's showing up? I 
one other thing. When you're bowing, um, and I didn't catch the whole phrase, but you um, said something to the effect that we don't have to be at the whims of dependent origination. Yes. What is that? What is being at the whim? What, what do you mean by that? What do you mean by that? That when something arises, we don't have to buy in the into the impulse to do something about it. That the content continues to arise. The emotions, the stories continue to arise. But after anger arises, not being at the, the whims of that anger is to see that you neither have to lash out of that anger, you don't have to cover up that anger, that you really don't have to do anything with it. So I think what's really hard for me or has been hard for me is thinking that I have to feel like doing the thing I need to do before I can actually do it. That somehow in order for it to be sincere or genuine, the feeling has to accompany it that it's it's right or it's good or I like it. And that is really hard for an aspiring bodhisattva to see that your feelings don't indicate how you should relate to the situation. It's, it's much more difficult than that. Isaac, Isaac Fallon, oh, uh, what does indicate um, how you should relate to a situation, Fallon? I don't know that it's something we can identify. The, the closest I've heard or would consider that Sokozans talk about is the situation itself. The situation lets you know what it needs, but it's not being um, communicated as thoughts and emotions. And so we come back to that idea of not knowing that perhaps relatively not knowing is the closest uh, ego can come to knowing what to do, <laughs> to seeing what's appropriate because you've not filled the space up yet. Um, so I, I don't know if that's helpful to consider how the situation is, is telling you precisely what it needs. You home. You home bowing. Uh, still, uh, maybe a second part of the question that I ask. As a student, how can you uh, suggest me to study the text? Because of when I read, I feel like I simply taking the words in by without uh, giving a doubt. Is that a, when the teacher Sukuzan said, giving a doubt, don't believe me? What does that mean? Does that apply to learning the text, learning this? I think the benefit of the doubt is encouraging us not to take a, an immediate position, but to consider what is arising. Consider it no matter how seductive it is. You don't have to step right into it. No matter how repulsive it is, you don't have to run away from it. So giving something the benefit of the doubt is that curiosity or the consideration, um, the most apparent way to work with that would be, again, studying with a group. But when you're looking at material by yourself, you could take your time and maybe take some notes, especially if it's uh, Dharma material that you may want to ask Sokazan about and see what are the areas that seem very apparent, what seems very contrary, and, and are there things I could do to look at that more closely? I don't know whether it's a concern, sorry, for the personal uh, question regarding learning the test. So when I, when I read certain 
a test is really stuck with me, very strong, showing up very strongly, which is very inspiring for me. However, I do also feel a little bit concerned whether I simply believe what I read. So that's the reason why I ask the question how I can be aware of not simply believe in what I'm reading, even though this is something that I'm so passionate about. Can I ask what, what the text is? Yes, it's the actually the Muzuku's um the the test is the um sorry I have to uh, make sure that I say the right right thing. The title you're in the email too, sorry. I cannot I just the, cannot the remember the title. Yes, the title of the, the book, yes. Yeah, um, one way you could do that is you could read it a hundred times and when you get to that you know read it 500 times you could see how that affects the intellectual and, and emotional qualities around it um there there i think there's a collection of 13 talks from sokazan on on my that he gave when i first met him in 2011 perhaps i think it was the session when they were over new year's I came for some of those talks, so that'd be another way to do it: is, is go into that material, go back into the, some of the talks on Hokkyo's online. But um, I think reciting it a lot might uh, bring some different uh, awareness into it. Thank you, Bye. It would be neat if um, you know that Hokkyo's online was written by uh, uh, Dong Shan Lianji. It would be really neat to hear that in Mandarin. Sometime, if you ever uh, recorded it, I would love to hear how it sounds. You're here. Yeah. Go ahead, Jishin. Jishin Belling. What is that which communicates what is needed in the situation, Belling? It's, it's not. It's not confined to locality. It is not a source. It is it is dependent origination itself, you could say. So it's it's not a special a special thing. Um, I I like when Sokazan says the Dharma is mutual, like the teachings are mutual, that that has to co-arise with a teacher and a student, a question and a response. And so similarly, you don't have a teacher hoarding the Dharma, and you don't have a student that they have to come together it seems for the dharma to to be expressed in a relative sense and i think similarly with the situation you can't find the part that you would call a situation that's saying what it needs but it's actually the totality it's it's it is dependent origination so what is what is in us which can Receive or understand it, if not thoughts or emotions? Bowing. Very good question. And again, I'm not meaning to dismiss that, but it really, it's, it doesn't matter. You, you do not need to locate that. You do not need to dissect and, and find that. It is, to me, it is so much more intimate. And, and that's what the practice is, is encouraging us or inviting us to do, is to just come into that space. Uh, initially that space is the zendo virtually or in person that is the space you share with your teacher physically or virtually 
Um, you don't have to go looking for something beyond that, but we can continue to come to that with an idea of what is this? What is this? What is this? We can close with staying the dedication minute. As Sokazan often does, just let you know that we really appreciate all the support you show through your contributions and your participation. There's a great deal, and I mean a great deal, that goes into keeping this functioning, operating up and running, just being able to continue to make these teachings available, let alone the maintenance of the building. So anything you can offer is always greatly received and appreciated. And again, if uh, nothing else, your, your greatest gift is your participation uh, in these teachings and practices.